This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Jared Klee. Jared is Director of Web3 at Vouch Insurance and was previously Blockchain Project Manager at IBM. Our conversation starts with Jared's crypto experience at IBM and how they use blockchain technology to help move mangoes around the world. Yes, mangoes. We then dive into insurance, how Vouch underwrites Web3 startups, and what mistakes most founders make. Please enjoy this conversation with Jared Klee. So Jared, thank you for joining me today. Excited to be here. I thought a fun place would be when looking up your resume, you were at IBM back in 2018, and you were the director of blockchain. I think I was surprised to see that IBM had a director of blockchain. So what was IBM working on four or five years ago now related to on-chain work? We were doing a lot. IBM was driving the enterprise blockchain space. So let's go back even further before 2018. I was leading corporate development for a chunk of IBM. At that point, IBM blockchain was in research. So this is before the Linux Foundation Hyperledger initiative, where we had the various enterprise blockchain projects. And IBM wrote the initial code for what became Hyperledger Fabric, an enterprise blockchain framework. We pulled that out of research, wrapped a business unit around it, and then began to build out both in-house products, so your traditional open source with the platform around it to enable enterprises to go build on it. We built out applications ourselves, ran nodes on networks, and then in many cases got involved with consortiums and joint ventures and all types of versions of multi-party networks. And yours truly, at the beginning, was structuring that, helping structure consortiums across the world with a fairly large team of folks involved for each one, getting big enterprise players all running in the same direction at the same time. Eventually got my fingers into the digital currency work as we started poking our heads into launching tokens and helping people with central bank digital currencies and all the fun messiness. So to me, it reminds me of the phrase back at that time period when people say, I'm not interested in crypto, but I'm interested in blockchain technology. How does an enterprise blockchain work if there's no, or is there a financial mechanism with tokens or securing the network that I'm not aware of? So more often than not, when you're working with enterprises, you're looking at private permission networks. And there, it's known parties entering the network. There's a working assumption among the parties that they trust each other. So we've seen this begin to emerge, for instance, in the medical sphere, where folks need to share data among hospitals, say, for it's for clinical research. Say, we've seen parallels in the drug discovery space as drugs go through the discovery process. 
through the actual then clinical trials and so on, and enormous chunks of data need to be shared. You assume that it's a trusted set of parties there, but you want to have tight governance control over the data, over what gets updated, knowing who did what when. So you tend to have consensus mechanisms that while the math under the covers is a bit fancier, it's basically a big easy button. It allows you to secure the network with multiple parties, but the assumption is that you're working with people that aren't adversarial actors. Is the consensus in that case some sort of fact-based thing? Like, oh, you're working on this drug and I agree with you, so then we're calling that truth? Or what does it mean to secure a network like that? So it depends on what you're trying to achieve. So let's take two different examples. So in the shipping world, we set up a multi-party consortium to track container movement around the world. And that's a classic case of if you are part of the 27 parties between getting mangoes from South Africa to Newark, you're the shipper, you're the placement agent, you're the take your pick of that party. You need aspects of that data. You need to be able to commit that to the network and say, yes, I verified this and I swear that it's mangoes in the box and not something that's going to get hung up in sanctions going across the city. And then that moves on to the next person. Yes, I swear I put it there. We had a temperature check on it. It was at the proper temperature, so on and so forth. So that network, each one of those parties is committing data. They're going to see, depending on the permissions, the various shippers and so on who are running the full governance nodes and saying, yes, known party, we accept that we step forward. Well, let's keep that example because it's kind of a fun one, the mango one. What is that displacing today? What does that look like? A bunch of different databases? Oh, God, no. I wish it was displacing a bunch of databases. That's replacing manila envelopes. So quite literally, the process today, it's a really good example of digitizing the process as opposed to digitizing the data to start. Today, if you're trying to move, and we did like the original PowerPoint slide, it was 26 or 28 parties to get stuff from Joburg to Newark. And what you're looking at is a manila envelope full of PDFs that one gets stacked on top of the other in the right order with the right set of signatures and then passed on to the next party. And as you can imagine, it's a wildly inefficient process rife with shenanigans that nobody really wants to think about, never mind the time problems and data gets lost and so on. So step one of that was just digitize the process. Don't even try and get the data off the PDFs. Get the PDFs into a format that can move around easily, and you can guarantee the signature of who came before you and see the order of operations. Great. Once you've done that, then we can start to have more interesting conversations about what is in the data and pumping that through FERCA soft for your anti-money laundering checks and so on. But step 101 is get the damn thing out of a manila envelope and into something like a digital format. I guess I'm curious how it went from manila envelope to blockchain and why there was no fintech or tech company trying to just start in the middle and be like, oh, we can give you our software, charge all 27 people subscription fees and somehow make this a better process. The challenge with a process like that is you can try and take on each individual piece of it. And there's value in doing that. Okay, I'm going to digitize one piece. I'm going to create a calendar that shows you when the ships are arriving. I can show you where the space is on the ships and place stuff in there. You're still left over with this coordination problem among 26, 28 players that aren't incentivized to share data 
but nonetheless need to know about the parties that came before them and get strong guarantees that they quite literally signed off on what their piece of the process was before passing it along. You need a system that allows you to selectively share data among an enormous chunk of parties, share only the data you need to, and provide a set of guarantees on what those signatures are that came before. It's not just somebody creating a fake signature. With that set of constraints, all of a sudden, blockchain's not just a tool looking for a use case. It's the de facto thing to go use. It's really hard to get those guarantees without it. That's super interesting. All right. That was more than I plan on learning about IBM. I love diving in there. I'll talk to someone about enterprise blockchains at some point. So you've moved into insurance and a very specific type of insurance. As someone who came from the finance world, insurance analysts, insurance in general is not necessarily the most sexy topic, but I think this is a really interesting one because I talked to a lot of founders as an investor. They need insurance for their startups. There's this whole new world. It's our king. There's lots of letters and acronyms. So why don't we start with a thumbnail sketch of the insurance world or the type of insurance Vouch offers? What are the type of insurance policies that someone might need? Vouch is the insurance of tech. We started out underwriting startups for general liability. Someone's in the office, stubs their toe. Underwriting employee practices liability. You have employees, you can have harassment suits, the like. But there's this long tail of other what I'll call just general good business coverages. If your employees get in a car accident while driving on business stuff, there are policies for that. The challenge when Vouch started for other insurers are, they don't really know what startups, they don't really know how to underwrite them. When it's two people in mom's garage with a napkin sketch, that's not a risk profile that a traditional legacy insurer understands, nor do they have the setup to profitably underwrite those types of companies. Most big legacy insurers are people-intensive, paper-intensive, it's long processes, and as a result, it's high touch, it's high cost to underwrite. So when you're trying to underwrite somebody who doesn't have that much capital, is just beginning to get going, you need a novel way of getting signal, you need a novel way of underwriting them that's tech forward, allows you to do that efficiently. So Vouch started out underwriting startups from the earliest stage. As they've grown, Vouch has grown with them. So we evolved from writing general liability and so on, which we still provide today, to writing the more specific risks that bigger companies have. As companies get bigger, those get even more nuanced. So things like directors and officers, take a step back. Corporations are set up to prevent liability, protect the directors, the officers, the employees from liability. Well, there's still a gap in that structure. Directors can get named personally in lawsuits. So we've created directors and officers so that the directors, the corporation itself, both protected in the case of a lawsuit. As we get into specific industries, the types of things we can expect get more and more nuanced if you are a fintech company versus if you are a crypto company, if you're a life sciences company. Crime is another one. Employees' bank account, as we'll get into with the Web3, the assets they can now steal, it's not just the bank account anymore. It's not just physical goods. As we get into errors and omissions, the company says it's going to do stuff. Sometimes it fails. That can result in financial losses to companies. The classic example here is if you're running a stock trading app and you say, we're always going to be on, 
and then the system goes down and the market moves in the wrong direction, your customers have lost money. Arizona Emissions covers those types of scenarios. But again, as you can imagine, as a company grows, the nuances and what needs to be covered under these changes. The last, and we'll get into it's because it's the biggest bucket is cyber. And of course, that's always top of mind in the crypto world, but cyber takes on very different flavors. Again, if you're life sciences versus fintech versus crypto or so on. So Vouch started with startups as the insurance of tech. We now underwrite startups, growth stage, the lot, really specializing in venture-backed, innovative founders changing the world. I was super interested when you brought this idea because it didn't make any sense to me at first. Because when I think of insurance and this dodgy way, which I know you're going to educate me on, I think of AAA rated corporations with huge balance sheets that the insurance business, as much as people think that's what they're doing, they're really running that at break even, maybe even loss. And then you got Warren Buffett taking all that float. So basically, a way to say it is you charge premiums and you hope the house doesn't get knocked down. And if the house gets knocked down in 12 years, Warren Buffett outperforms the market over those 12 years. So when it gets knocked over, he's good to go. That would have seemed highly capital intense. That would have seemed like a really risky area. Explain to me how that old dodgy business model of how I think of insurance applies to what Vosh is doing, because it sounds very different. It is very different. When we look at the different types of insurance, we need to split up the market a little bit and then first narrow in what is insurance and then split up the market a little bit here. So first off, insurance is really focused on loss risk. When we think about risk in an investing context and people say, yeah, I'm risk on trade, I like risk. Typically, what we're talking about is speculative risk, meaning there's upside potential. When we talk about insurance in a pure sense of insurance, we're focused on loss risk. There is no upside to getting hacked. There's no upside to your directors getting sued. Insurance is focused on loss risk. Within that narrower bucket, there's a couple different terms, but admitted, non-admitted market. So admitted markets, insurance is regulated at the state level primarily. Admitted market is looking at auto. It's looking at the personal lines for homeowners. It's looking at the insurance lines that are tightly regulated by the state. And as kind of a general categorization here, are kind of no. We know what an auto risk looks like. This is your law of large numbers. You driving on the road, the risk profile with some nuance is not all that different from what I look like. Those tend, commoditized is too strong a word, but it tends towards the direction of a commodity product, wherein as a result, the underwriters tend to write at a break-even point. So how do they make money if they're writing at break-even? As you said, they take the float, they invest it, that generates the returns. We have what can be called the non-admitted market, what can be called the surplus market. It's the, hey, we have risks that we don't quite understand are truly nuanced, but we do need insurance for them. There's much more diversity in what gets underwritten in that space. Policy to policy, insurer to insurer, you can have materially different coverages for what at top level, say cyber, sounds the same, but as you get under the covers, again, the difference among companies is going to change materially. If you were in drug discovery, your focus on protecting those patents, we have an entire tech industry built on top of open source. I haven't heard of people building drug discovery on top of open source. Your concerns of what you're protecting is different. 
So for insurers that are more focused, and again, Vouch writes both types, when we get into Web3, we are writing surplus lines. The nuance is much deeper. The types of coverages we provide are unique. And as a result, we tend to write those at a profit because that is the focus of the business model as opposed to the reinvesting the flow. Nice to have, not the core revenue driver. So help me understand. I always think of this as looking at a bunch of historical data. So to your point, you have a bunch of cars on the road and you have a diversified pool of drivers. Some are horrible drivers, some are good drivers. And on average, you know what's going to happen and you feel pretty confident. You get to like hurricanes in Florida and you got a whole different game where it became challenging and sure struggle. So the more uncertain I become about the history, the less confident I am. So when you say you write for a profit or this notion of surplus, is this just subjective belief at the company? To your point, you're insuring unknowable things. So how do you know you're writing at a profit? Strong underwriting practices. Our Web3 policies are invite only. Even when you go to our other verticals as we work with what we call scale, our larger, more sophisticated clients with unique risks, we go deep with those clients. We spend an enormous amount of time with them, understanding the nuances of their businesses, how they work, the risk they take on, how they're going to intend to grow over time. And we have a robust partner network that we work with to get additional signal about what it is they're doing. We have a really deep partnership with Silicon Valley Bank. They're absolutely wonderful. They do a wonderful job banking companies. They do a wonderful job banking crypto companies, by the way. They are looking at a different angle of risk than we are. When someone comes in, they're focused on anti-money laundering. They're focused on things that matter from, okay, we're going to bank you. We're going to give you debt to fund the company and so on. It's a different view of what risk is than what Vouch has with an insurance angle. But when you combine those two, and we sit down and talk regularly about how we view risk, we sit down and talk regularly about, hey, we just had this wonderful founder come in. They're building an awesome company. They need banking services. Can I introduce them to you? Hey, they need insurance. Can you introduce them over? We get a different signal than perhaps we'd see just looking at it from the insurance angle. It also compounds because when you bring in a founder, you're looking for signal both on the risk, but also on is this somebody thoughtfully building a company for the long term? When a founder comes in and says, hey, I know we're just getting going, but I've already started to lock in my banking partner. I've got so-and-so for my outside counsel. I've got this person doing my taxes. I've got these for my security audits. But they start hitting the list. You go, got it. I'm not going to be able to understand absolutely everything about this client, about this founder, about their business. But I've got somebody across the table who's clearly thinking thoughtfully about how to de-risk. And we are helping them solve for residual risk after they've put that strong risk management program in place. Take a step back before I dive further into the examples. When I've seen these venture-backed insurance companies, something that might be clear is that some of them are really just tech applications. Really, all they're doing is gathering information, normalizing it, then bidding it out to other insurers, and then trying to act as an insurance agent. That's not what I think of as what you guys are doing. Is it fair to say that when you're underwriting, you're actually taking that risk onto your own balance sheet? Is that accurate? So Vouch has within it a insurance company. We have a panel of reinsurers who stand behind us. And we have Vouch Specialty, which is a brokerage arm. So we have balance sheet at risk. And for risks that we ourselves either don't want to underwrite 
because it's outside our core competency or for risks that say we can't underwrite because we're focused on underwriting the business and perhaps they need key man insurance, which is outside business insurance, we engage with Vouch Specialty and they bring it out to market in the model you're talking about. Okay. So you guys do both of those. You both insure on your own as well as use other insurers. We have balance sheet at risk. We have reinsurers standing behind us. We have Vouch Specialty, which is a broker jar to bring it out. The Web3 policies that we write underwriting the crypto, balance sheet at risk, although we do also engage the broader market as needed. The thing I'm thinking about is now I'm going back to like the Berkshire days of Buffett and a Jane writing the specialty insurance. And they would always come up with, there's a rare diamond and somebody wants to insure it's not going to disappear for 10 years. And there's no actuarial table to look at to figure out what's the odds of this diamond disappearing. But at least it's a well-defined event. Like, does the diamond exist or it doesn't? I think what I find so fascinating is in a startup, we talked about this idea of risk, but I think I want to stay on that line of thinking is when someone says they invested in a bunch of startups as an angel investor, I expect a lot of those to go to zero or a lot of things to happen that are bad. As an insurer, who's to your point, just worried about the downside, the word uninsurable isn't the right word, but like more concerning risk where there's so many unknowns. When you're the venture capitalist, you've got this upside exposure. When you're the insurer, how do you think about trying to underwrite that risk? Two answers. One is you have to understand the companies you're working with at a really, really deep level. Each one does have its own nuance. It's going on its own path. Two, you need to take a portfolio approach. You're not going to get it exactly right every time. We have over 4,000 clients. We have a wide diversity of startups that we work with, startups and growth stage clients who we are underwriting. Three, you have an enormous number of tools at your disposal to start to box in some of those risks. So the bluntest tool you have is the limits you put in place. So you say, we'll insure you for up to a million dollars, for up to $2 million of risk. You can then write that for each one of the lines. We'll underwrite a million dollars of directors and officers risk, but we'll underwrite $2 million of cyber risk. You can break that down further. Cyber, for instance, breaks down. You have third party, which is bad things happening to your customers because you had a vulnerability. First party is bad things happening to you, the insured, because you had a vulnerability. You can write different limits at that level. You can then get the next level down, which is, okay, when something bad happens, what actually plays out? Well, if they stole data, you have privacy liability. Well, there's going to be a regulatory angle of engaging them, but then there's going to be a public relations angle. All those notices we get in the email offering Experian credit monitoring, that has to get funded and paid for under the covers. So you can get a different level down. If we go even further down in a cyber hack, what is it that gets taken? And it's often as we get into the nuances, this is the details of underwriting. How can we bring on a client, insure them for the risks that they actually have, give them appropriate coverages for the risks that they have? but still do it in a way that one is capital efficient for them as opposed to giving them coverages for risks they don't have, but two starts to box in the risk from the insurer standpoint where we're not taking on things that are inappropriate for us to take on. Does this model work because most startups fail? So it's like a lot of unused premiums for no fault of its own. They're not around as much, so they never actually have a chance to get sued. Like you sue people with money. It's exactly the opposite. We are de-risking our clients. We are helping them when things go bad, 
we are one of the main reasons that they continue to survive because there's a bucket of money to help solve for the problem that isn't their balance sheet. As a result, our book grows year over year for the same reason a VC grows. Yes, some of our clients fail, but the ones that are left have grown so much that they've more than made up for the fact that some of our clients don't make it, the natural fall off in startups. And as companies grow, they double, they triple, they 10x year over year, their exposures grow as well. And we have the scale team to step in and start helping them with those more nuanced coverages for the new broader exposures they've had because they 10x the size of the company. We're thrilled. We love to see it. As those companies come to you, the first thing that came to my mind was if I'm advising a founder and they're like, hey, I want to get insurance. And there's this litany of lists. You go on these websites and they give you these packages of buy these 17 acronyms of insurance because you're a startup. It's like, your startup package, you definitely just assume, A, there's probably a bunch of insurance they don't need, and B, this asymmetry problem that with auto insurance, even that's hard to compare where it's similar. Should I go here or there? This seems even harder for the client to understand what's the relative value of going to vouch versus your competitor. So how does a founder work through the pros and cons of the price, the coverage, and the terms? So first off, I think it's ridiculous to expect any founder who's not already in the insurance space to have deep knowledge of insurance. It doesn't make sense. And even personality-wise, you think about founders start companies because they believe, one, in the problem that they're solving, and they're maniacally focused on solving that problem. And I'm saying this as a former founder. But two, because they believe in the upside of what they're solving. It's that infinite possibility. If they spent their time thinking about all the ways things could go wrong, they'd stay in a comfy corporate job. We spend our time thinking about all the things that could go wrong and the nuance of it and how to cover it. So first answer is you need somebody across the table who can walk you through that journey, understand the company, and actually provide useful advice on what the risks are that need to be covered. We as Vouch, we are the preferred insurance partner for Y Combinator, for Silicon Valley Bank. We can go down the long tail. There's a reason. We've been doing it for multiple years. We've been successfully doing it for multiple years. We've been helping companies survive and grow and thrive because we are thinking about and covering their downside. So that's point one. Point two, it was hugely important for me when thinking about where to build a Web3 practice to go insure an industry that hasn't been able to get insurance to date that the incentives were aligned. Vouch's balance sheet is at risk when we underwrite startups. We have a brokerage arm, we use it, that's hugely valuable. But for the majority of the clients we engage with, we are sitting on the same side of the table. When the startup struggles, we are the ones there with the balance sheet helping them survive and get back into shape and eventually thrive. That was hugely important to me that I'm able to sit across the table from my clients and say, yes, it's us at risk alongside you. Between deep advice and deep alignment of interests, that's about as strong advice as I can give for a founder going and looking. At that point, then go do a lot of research. When I think about the risks that you could enter, the different asset classes, the reason, presumably, why Web3 companies have this trouble is that when traditional insurance underwriters look at it, their heads probably spin the level of risk that's being taken. So why does Vouch consider Web3 
an opportunity and not a risk to run away from. So first, look at our history. We started with startups, which at the time were considered uninsurable. As they've grown, we've continued to insure them. We now insure growth stage and the like. Wherever founders go, we are following their helping protect against the loss risk for them. We've seen close to $40 billion flow into Web3 startups, crypto, crypto adjacent in the past 18 months. Yet they need help protecting the downside loss. Even after a great risk management program is put in place, there's still that residual risk. That's exactly where insurance steps in. So the question is, how do you get comfortable taking on an industry that at least to date hasn't had insurance? Step one, again, is deep, deep understanding of the clients that you're working with. We work with founders that are trying to build strong companies for the long term. Really good example, Dan over Ansible is building a crypto off-ramp. When we think about the risk profile of that, immediately comes to mind is anti-money laundering risk. You're turning Bitcoin, ETH, the like, into cash, getting it into a bank account that raises the profile of risk for anti-money laundering. Dan is ex-Visa, has been doing product over there for years. His other co-founders, ex-JP Morgan compliance team. You've got a super strong tech team over there. And if you get under the covers with Dan, you start to realize the platform he is building for business-to-business transactions so that they can continue to operate in a web-free ecosystem and get access to dollars, say, to pay the employees and to pay the AWS bill and the like. And you start to recognize the level of thoughtfulness on the cyber controls he's putting in place, the governance controls he's putting in place, the strength of the platform he's building, starting with that off-ramp, but building more broadly as a payment platform. You can't not get excited about founder like that. At that point, now your question is, what are the nuanced risks specific to blockchain, specific to crypto that Dan's taking on that we need to provide coverages for above and beyond a good founder building a great company for the long term? And in that case, we're looking at things like the regulatory risk. We're looking at things like there is crypto for his clients and crypto on the balance sheet. We're looking at things like under cyber, we have state-sponsored actors, North Korea and Iran hacking things. We protect against all of those. Now, those are all nuanced conversations with each client, but those are risks they're taking on that even with a great risk management program, they simply cannot offset. And that is exactly the right role for insurance. So the answer is we spend an enormous amount of time with our clients understanding their specific risks. And we have an underwriting team that's been red-pilled. We have a Web3 lead, yours truly, that's been red-pilled. Most of us have been in this space a long time and are looking at this as you've got good founders trying to build good long-term companies, and they need the basic thin ops infrastructure to do so. What is part of the financial operating system? Banking, taxes, insurance. This is stuff that hasn't been available. We are playing our small role in helping founders continue to build. It sounds like you've got a pretty good position in a niche market that incumbents don't want to get involved in. I guess when I think about the risks with this more recent downturn in crypto, how has that impacted the underwriting cycle or the underwriting process for you all? To give a bit of insight into how we think about our clients, FTX blew up. We have no known exposure to FTX. Us, our clients, residual, indirect, none. Tells you the type of clients that we're looking to take on. 
We're looking to take on people building long-term companies, shipping real product to real users, providing real value. If you look at what I've written, and I'm quite public about it, go back to August before any of this started happening, I wrote a fairly pointed piece on my dissatisfaction with centralized crypto exchanges, period. And even the best managed of them, the challenges with internal conflicts of interest, the challenges with how to secure something like that, it's not a business model that I like. So it's a good example of we look out for those risks when we go and engage our clients. With the cycle, what we've seen is a washout of a lot of bad actors. We've seen a washout of a lot of actors who were overleveraged. Those aren't the types of clients that we're looking at and sitting across the table and going, yeah, that's someone building for the long term. They've levered up a thousand to one and are hoping that Swiss cheese model, everything goes right. We're working with folks that are building banking platforms. They've got banking partners. They've got fire blocks under the covers to go solve for the digital asset management and the key custody. And they're saying, hey, we've got crypto companies for the first time that need help managing single version of the truth as they manage across different types of assets in different locations for paying vendors, for collecting for vendors, for paying bills, for invoicing, and so on. We have clients that are solving tax problems. But we go down the long tail. We are insuring some of the largest L1s and L2s. They're great companies. They're well-built. They're trying to build for the long term. We are insuring some of the largest NFT projects, the profile picture space, as well as folks in the ticketing space and doing other awesome stuff. But a lot of it is sitting down, talking with those founders, understanding how are they building their company and how are they thinking about the value they're providing to the user, not just today, but how they're building it so they're going to continue to provide more value tomorrow. And while there are nuances to crypto, I would tell you that's the same conversation you're having with a founder building in fintech, building in life sciences. It's an attitude and it's a structure about how you build a resilient company with good risk management and the macro world will happen. So this probably applies beyond Web3, but maybe more so there, I guess, I suppose, is that just the idea of, in your example with Dan, Great founder, you're happy, you sound more like a venture capitalist who really wants to invest in their future than someone running an insurance policy. How do you handle the uncertain future and the chances of pivoting or changes in management? The simple example is you have a company that isn't levered up too highly, but then it decides to lever itself up or go in a direction that if you're a venture capitalist, maybe you're not happy, but you might have some governance rights. As the insurer, you're trying to be as much on that side of the table, but you're not like, hey, don't go that direction, we're nervous. We get paid premium, which is a lot smaller than ultimately the potential losses that we could see. Now, we price appropriately and so on, but if you were paying one for one, as much premium as you could potentially insure for losses, doesn't make much sense from a founder. First question is, when we talk with founders, what are we looking for? And for lack of a better term, character. This is no different, at least from that angle, than if you're sitting in the VC chair. You don't know necessarily what's going to happen over the next 12 months. So you try and do business with good people. Second thing, we have partnerships. We have partnerships with a number of venture capital firms where we're the preferred insurance provider. Again, Y Combinator, WeWork. If you're a startup and you go get an office at WeWork and you get a notice that says, hey, you need general liability insurance to have an office here, we are the preferred insurance provider. We're looking for signal from multiple different places about where they're going to go. Third thing, we structure the policies to grow with the client. 
So we write policies with an expectation of where they're going to go over the next 12 months, but we do box them in wherein if they go in an entirely different direction, we get triggers and we're able to sit down with them and say, hey, look, you're taking on novel risk that this policy wasn't meant to cover. In order for you to continue to be covered against the downside loss potential, we need to rethink what those coverages are to cover against that new unexpected activity. A good example in the Web3 space, we have clients that have issued tokens. Great. Awesome. Many of them are well-governed. They are properly issued. We've got partnership with Upside, who's helping clients do the regulated registered token management, the governance of that for vesting and so on. We have clients who plan on issuing tokens. We could do that two different ways. One, we could try and ask them to estimate what the world's going to look like in six months, maybe six months, or whenever that's going to happen. And we could try and guess at what a policy is going to look like. One, overcharging them. It's not a good use of their capital. We're not going to understand exactly what they're doing today. So we sit down with the founders and go, look, what I want to do is let's check in in a quarter. Let's check in in four months. Let's check in in five months. Let's check in when you have your arms wrapped around what that token launch is going to look like. We'll sit down. We'll understand who the outside counsel is, what the model is, which entity is going to launch it, how it will be distributed, who's it going to, how you guys are governing it. And when it's appropriate to write a policy, because you're now actually taking on that risk, we will expand the policies, the coverages you have to cover that risk. In the meantime, we're going to write a note, an exclusion in our current policy that says we're not covering a token launch. That allows us to ensure startups and growth stage startups for the risks that they have without asking them to overpay for risks that they don't have yet, but they'll naturally grow into. And as they get there, we check in and we expand what we're doing to actually cover those novel risks. For a seed-funded startup where you started two people in a garage working on an idea, I know everything's nuanced, but I am curious to kind of get your take on these startup packages of what is a base level of insurance you think most startups should have? And at what point in their life cycle do you think it's really important to actually engage in these deeper discussions? First off, I'll plug this. We just published maybe a month ago an awesome set of resources that walk through exactly this question. As you just start out, as you get your seed stage, as you grow into Series A, as you grow from there, what are the right coverages based on how much capital and how much revenue, employees and some high-level metrics, what is it that's appropriate for you? Awesome set of resources. I'm saying that it's what I wish I had, so I didn't have to figure it out for myself in a past life. If you're just at napkin sketch, two folks, mom's garage, basics, general liability, business property. General liability is the catch-all for things happen. Business properties, you're going to have laptops, you're going to have whatever else. We write those as low as $200 for a policy. Now, that provides what I would call coverage appropriate for a company at that stage. Obviously, premiums go up as the companies grow. As you grow into taking outside capital for the first time, as you grow into having a proper board for the first time, almost certainly your directors and officers is going to come because all of a sudden you have folks who are taking on personal liability. They can be named in a lawsuit because of something the company did. And without an insurance policy behind that, personal assets are at risk. No founder is getting paid to put their personal assets at risk. That's what directors and officers stands in for. Depending on the amount of capital raised and so on, 
that policy is going to grow over time from small coverages up to quite large coverages. As you hire employees, employee practice liability. This gets more into law of large numbers. The more employees you have, the more likely it is that you will end up with a scenario where you have a liability for terminating someone or the like. We are seeing more and more of that and eyes wide open to founders right now. We are seeing more and more of that as we're seeing many different layoffs across many different states. In the past five, 10 years, we've seen more employee-friendly jurisdictions emerge at a state level. Both of those are driving novel liability. As companies grow and start shipping product, delivering product or services to clients, now we're starting to look at Arizona emissions and cyber. Arizona emissions is, as a company said you were going to do something, you either failed to do it or you didn't do it quite right, and somebody sues because they suffered a financial loss. Clearly, the more product you deliver, the more users you have, the greater the guarantees you're providing against that, the greater the liability that comes along. And that'll tend to grow with a company. Cyber, cyber's a bit funky because a lot of it's going to depend on what is the data you're collecting? What is the service you're delivering? What's the availability of that? Who can access that? When they can access it, what can they do with it? What are you as a company holding on to that might be attractive for somebody else to come after? It's critical, both errors and omissions and cyber to know, it's not just what you do. All of us are building on top of AWS. We're building on top of mainnet. We're engaging with third-party vendors who help deliver our email and so on. You retain residual liability across all of that. If they screw something up and your customers suffer, you don't just get to pass the buck and point at your vendors or the platforms you're building on. You retain some of that residual liability. So the greater that surface grows, the more there is to think about. Cyber in the crypto world, the obvious one is smart contract vulnerability. Smart contract and then loss of digital assets if someone hacks and steals. We cover against both. Again, we cover against the state-sponsored actor version as well. But for us, when we look at that, the fact that you're building on top of mainnet, you're building on top of Polygon, you're building on top of Solana, we love to see it, but it presents a novel risk surface that is different than building on top of AWS. Different is fine, but we have to make sure we have coverages that actually cover you for that. And I go down that path because you ask at what stage do you get what coverages? Well, if you're just seed stage, but you've already deployed a service on mainnet and it's got thousands or millions of users hitting it, you may have greater exposures, errors and omissions, and greater cyber exposure than you would normally expect for a company at that stage. Meanwhile, if you've raised enormous sums of capital, but you're still pre-product, you may have unusually large directors and officers exposure because you're now a target to go after because you have an enormous balance sheet, even though you're pre-product. So you may not have errors and omissions exposure. You may not be delivering product that triggers cyber. So there's finger in the air math of stages, but then it's the deep dive conversation and understanding what the company's actually doing at that point in time and what the risk surface is. In your past experience as a founder, and now seeing across them, these founders are deciding who should get into vouch and who shouldn't. What are some of the greatest mistakes you see from the founder side? Founders are primed to think about the upside and not the downside. We see this frequently with repeat founders they tend to think about the downside more because they've lived it. They've seen things that 
should have been wildly successful and failed for dumb reasons, ultimately controllable reasons. The biggest challenge I see with first-time founders is a failure of imagination. They fail to imagine the low-probability long-tail event that could undermine all the otherwise absolutely awesome work they're doing. The second point I see, and this is founder stage agnostic, is a failure to wrap their arms around the growing risk surface as the company grows. We try to stay lockstep with our clients. You raise around, we're going to check in. We haven't heard from you, we're going to check in. When a founder raises that $10 million, $50 million, $100 million round, becomes a unicorn, it's absolutely wonderful. And we're wonderfully excited for them. But with success, with scale, the risk surface scales as well. We have had a couple of clients who come to us and they say, hey, we had this banner year. We've been flying under the radar, been in stealth mode, and we're now a bajillion times bigger. We've signed all these massive clients. We should talk about what to do next. And the answer is, we should probably talk about that as all of that is happening because your coverages need to keep up with the growing risk surface. My advice for founders as they think about it is, it's okay if you don't want to spend your time thinking about the growing risk surface, but you should probably have somebody on your team who spends their time thinking about the growing risk surface. I guarantee your outside counsel is thinking about that. They're covering a specific type of risk. Your chief risk officer, chief information security officer is thinking about that, but there will continue to be residual risks You need somebody on the team, a partner, an employee, a board member who, when things are going great, all they can think about is, oh God, what could possibly go wrong to derail this? In Pixar Inside Out, you have this character, the green character, who is everything's going wrong, just like jumps out and gets scared all of a sudden like, oh no, what could possibly go? Oh my God, this is terrible. It's not that that is always right. It's that every once in a while, that will be right. And that's what you need to cover yourself against. And it's exactly, you need somebody on the team as a partner who's got that in the back of their head all of the time. And that will help you protect your downside. When we see all of these hacks and web through, like on the cyber side specifically, have there been cases where insurance actually helped and paid out? Was an example of smart contract risk actually being exploited and insurers stepping in to help the end clients? So we've seen a handful of on-chain providers, Web3 native providers, begin to insure against very specific types of risk. So you have a handful of folks who insure against loss of digital assets held at a centralized exchange. You will have a handful of insurance providers insure specific smart contracts, wherein that smart contract is holding funds and gets hacked and loses funds the insurance policy will reimburse token holders. Most of those policies, they're not insurance in the traditional sense. You have a true DeFi solution there where you have a pool of folks who are depositing into the pool. They are generating some type of expected yield out of that pool. And when losses happen, you have a governance structure, often a DAO, that's deciding whether or not that meets the criteria for a payout. That is, first off, awesome. It's wonderfully exciting to see that emerge. That is going to take a long time to mature such that the payouts are properly calibrated, such that the yield generated is properly calibrated, 
that takes a long time. We've got a couple hundred years of doing insurance, what I'd call in the traditional way. And this is a novel, wonderfully exciting way of doing it, but will take time. That's been the vast majority of the payouts to date is through those structures. And reason being is until Vouch launched Web3 policies September 1st, we haven't had meaningful insurance for most businesses in the crypto Web3 arena. The exception to that statement is there is a robust and rapidly growing industry to ensure cold storage. So Coinbase famously bought an enormous policy to cover Coinbase's prime cold storage. I believe copper is fully insured for the cold storage that they provide. We've seen Kraken and the others obtain similar policies. To date, I'm not aware of a cold storage hack, but I'd also note that we are very, very, very early in that journey. So is it your belief that over time you do expect more insurers to enter this space, or does it really still feel quite early for you insuring in the Web3 vertical? So I look at this over a multi-decade horizon, and I am actively looking for partners to come into the ecosystem, provide balance sheet, and write good coverages, insuring founders, insuring late-stage companies. We insure businesses. That is our specialty. I want to see more people come in and insure cold storage. We need it. I want to see people come in and discover how to insure hot wallets. We need it. We have clients that have a charted wallet solution where they're providing wallets on a per-client basis. While they can get insurance for cold storage, they can't get insurance on a per-client basis the way we might analogous think about FDIC insurance on a per-bank account basis. That doesn't exist yet. We don't see a robust market for smart contract insurance, not the business that's deploying it, but the smart contract itself and its vulnerabilities. We can go down, there's a litany of things that as we better understand the risks, as we get insurers who can wrap their heads around it, price it appropriately, and bring balance sheet to bear, we have an enormous number of risks where I want people to come in and provide that insurance. And when I look at the businesses themselves, they're businesses that we won't get comfortable with that another insurer will. I want more balance sheet to come in. The ecosystem is way too large, even today, for Vouch to underwrite the whole thing. My goal is for insurance to be one of those basic financial operating system checkboxes. When you're going and launching a company, as a founder, you ask the question, what should I do to de-risk my company so I can increase the probability that I succeed? I'm going to go get outside counsel. I'm going to go get a cap table management. I'm going to go get my banking services. I'm going to go get my insurance services. I'm going to go get my tax provider. There's a checklist. There's this financial operating system for the Web3 company in a box. And I am actively working with partners, but we can't be the only one. We need more people to come along. Is there an example of a risk that you've seen in Web3 or crypto specifically? Not a company but a type of business or a model that you're like, that's a risk even too far for us? The first and obvious one is there's no lack of fraud in the industry right now. We've got some headline folks who may have just got moved between countries who I think are now the poster children, more than one person at play there. You can't insure fraud. Fraud is always excluded from policies. It's uninsurable. That comes back to you have to understand the client you're working with, their business, and know who you're doing business with. The ridiculous yields that I see in a number of places 
in what has been a zero yield environment for going on decade and a half now to see yields provided that are high double digits, unsustainable at best is probably the nicest way to put that. More often than not, there's something happening under the covers that you probably don't want to know about and you probably want to get your money out before other people find out. Algorithmic stable coins, I hope somebody cracks that model. But to date, we've proven about 300 different ways you can't do it. We haven't proven that you can do it. Generally uninsurable for the moment. Bridges, same thing. I hope somebody solves robustly the crypto bridge problem. Again, we've proven pretty strongly how not to do it. We haven't seen someone prove strongly how to do it. So there are those types of risks that at least for the moment, put fraud to the side. Fraud is not a Web3 crypto-specific statement. You get a lot of money flowing into an ecosystem. You get the best people and the best founders. You get the worst people. Oftentimes, the worst people are still every bit as brilliant as the good people. It's hard to differentiate. It's not a Web3 statement. It's We've seen this before in the dot-com boom. We've seen it in years past. If we go all the way back when the railroads got built, we saw it with snake oil salesmen. That doesn't make railroad bad. It makes snake oil salesmen bad. We see novel business models getting built and novel technologies, some of which we haven't proven out yet. Some of those are uninsurable. In time, as they get proven, if we have a robust track record of what it looks like when they work, they may grow into something that becomes properly insurable. So we'd like to end these with the same question. Jared, what are you most excited to build over the next six months? And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? Over the next six months, I'm heads down doing what we've already started. We are just beginning on this journey. There are so many good founders out there. I'm meeting them every single day, building companies that I haven't even thought about solving problems that I didn't know existed, who can't go to sleep at night because they're staying awake thinking about, God, what can I do tomorrow in order to go fix this? They're building good, strong, long-term companies. Over the next six months, we are heads down, focused on getting more and more of them properly insured, properly covered, solving for their downside risk that to date has not been covered. As I look out over six years, it's that journey of what are the other risks that are in the crypto ecosystem that ultimately should be insurable? What can we do to build that financial operating system across partners in order to provide that crypto startup in a box so a founder can come to the table and say, great, these are the six, seven, eight things I need to do. These are a selection of partners that I could work with on any one of those in order to set myself up for success. We've partnered with Tactic on Taxes, Silicon Valley Bank for Banking, and Fireblocks for Digital Asset Management, and Upside for Token Management. We have a wonderful, wonderful network of partners. We're just beginning to crack what that can look like. And over time, it needs to be not just vouches underwriting Web3 companies. Here are the three or four insurance companies that specialize and deeply understand the space, deeply understand you as a founder. Go meet with all of them and find the partner that's right for you. I look forward to standing alongside awesome other companies with a similar shared vision. Awesome. Jared, thank you so much for the time today. This has been a lot of fun. Eric, thank you. It's been absolutely awesome. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 